This is a show about my heroes and their legacies. The legacies they're making and the ones they're breaking. These are their stories of successes and failures. These are their journeys. This is their legacy. This is Successor. My name is Evan Payne, and welcome to the Successor Podcast, a show dedicated to making and breaking legacies. I sit down with entrepreneurs, business leaders, foundation leaders, entertainers, and many more to learn how they're making impactful changes, not only in their industries, but in the world. This podcast is dedicated to those of you who are seeking purpose by plugging into some of my heroes who have found theirs. My guest today is Larry Smith, chairman of the board at Tokyo Electron U.S., Uh, Tokyo Electron is a global leader in the design, manufacture, and supply of semiconductor products and services. They provide technology that enables life through semiconductor manufacturing equipment. Thanks for joining. Thank you, Evan. It's a great pleasure to be here. It's so great to have you. And you know, I I think that some of the questions that I've that I've had when I when I've been preparing for this time with you, the more that I've asked myself about semiconductors, uh, the less I I feel like I know. Um, So I do want to, in just a couple minutes get into what the what they are how they how they operate um why the industry is important um and why it's incredibly relevant especially uh these days uh but i'd also like to to uh, take a minute um as we as we dive into a little bit of your background i'd love to understand a little bit about some important parts of your background that might have formed you know who who you've become uh including you know what uh, your west your time at west point your time in the uh, army and uh, and beyond there so i'm just gonna take a step back and and let you go look forward to the journey uh so uh, evan i grew up in, in northern minnesota uh from a family of of six five boys and one girl uh, i grew up in duluth minnesota uh, and my father uh, was a World War II veteran in the Pacific. So I have older brothers. I'm the fifth out of sixth. And, uh, and so he served on a number of island uh, battles in Iwo Jima, Guam, the Philippines, and Okinawa. And uh, I think you're aware I work for a Japanese company. You know? So it's very interesting of, of that upbringing, uh, very disciplined, uh, but a very family-oriented uh, uh, person. Uh, he has since passed, but when he was about 85 years old, I had the opportunity to bring him back to Japan to some of those destinations. And we spent time in Tokyo and in uh, Kumamoto and other parts of, of Japan and then finished a weekend in Okinawa. And uh, so the healing that came from, I mean, he didn't even buy his first Japanese car till he was about 82. <laughs> and and so uh, he regretted all the previous vehicles you know, that he'd purchased up to that point to see what the reliability and what could happen when actually purchasing one of those brands. But uh, middle-class family, came back from the war, became a a civil servant, a firefighter for 36 years, a leader, uh, a wonderful man. And my mother was a homemaker uh, and took care of us, uh, you know, all of our kids throughout her journey. But I knew that I had to um, pay for my own education. And so I used an athletic talent. In Minnesota, if you're not playing hockey, there's not much else to do. (laughs) And so I used an athletic talent uh, to get a a hockey scholarship. And I was fortunate enough uh, to be able to go to West Point, uh, played hockey for a couple of years, and then graduated and then served in the Army, which brought me to Texas. And I got here as quickly as I could. And uh, that's that's the early portion of my life uh, from West Point. And then uh, eventually, uh, when I got out of the service, uh, started my career in the semiconductor industry about 34 years ago. 
Wow. Well, I, I imagine there wasn't a lot of hockey played when you moved to Texas, uh, or did that continue? It's interesting. You know, I was stationed at Fort Hood, and uh, it's funny you mentioned that because Fort Hood had a hockey team, hmm. and we would come down to Austin, and this is really funny because back then there was no hockey, and I have the Dallas Stars and the, the, the uh, Texas Stars here in Austin, and uh, I played at North Cross Mall. And so I'm just out of college and in good shape, and we had a team. And I had more stitches in two and a half years playing in the North Cross Mall than I did in my previous, you know, previous 20-some years of playing hockey. And it was interesting because I'd go back to Fort Hood. You know, we play from like 10 p.m. till about midnight, you know, and then you're just recovering from the adrenaline. And I'd go back, and, and I, I ended up having to have a lot of stitches. And so you'd go back to Fort Hood's hospital, and they're like, hey, you know, what happened to you? Because they want to know line of duty. Do you need to get <laughs> investigation? And I'd say, well, you know, I got hit with a puck or a stick or something like that. And uh, inevitably, they say, hey, it's okay. I, I've been in bar fight myself, and I'm no. Actually, I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> well, uh, I I love that. I think something that you also highlighted along the way was uh, your uh, bringing your father to Japan and kind of that healing journey. And uh, I don't I don't have a lot to elaborate on at the moment about this, but what I'm I'm hearing, including in my story, I'm hearing more and more tidbits about how children have brought their parents to healing through through uh, events through forgiveness through you know through um uh re- even rehashing old events or or early traumas and and so i think that's really it's really fascinating to kind of hear that theme continue uh, did did you feel did you feel he was receptive to, receptive for that or did, did you feel like you had to drag him to that or was that a no he a, had he had told me you know i wanted to go back and um I would talk, my dad's a real disciplined person, you know, so like I would talk to him Saturday mornings I talked to him and my mother for 20 minutes and I'm just almost to the minute, you know, <laughs> and we go through the weather, we go through kind of the script. Um, but on one of the weekends when I was talking to my mother, which would go instead of 20 minutes to an hour and 20 minutes, more relational. And I knew he wanted to go back and I, I asked my mom, my dad wasn't on the phone that time. And I said, do you think dad could handle a 14 hour flight? You know, should I ask him? I know he wanted to. And about 15 minutes later, he called me. He says, when are we going? Oh, wow. And so, yeah, tremendously healing. Um, I'll tell you the one uh, significant event. We got there. You got jet lag. Um, I set up the next day because I was kind of blending work and, and this whole event. And I'd set him up for a tour of Tokyo the next day after we arrived. Got down to the concierge. And I said, hey, I need to get a cab or can we get some transportation to the tour bus? And he goes, oh, no, 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 Mr. Smith. He says, uh, we will have the bus show up to bring your, to pick up your father. So this huge tour bus pulls up to the hotel, picks him up. They go on a four or five hour tour. And, you know, so he's jet lag. He's 82 years old. He's a little disoriented. He comes back and uh, the concierge called me. He says, well, we've had a little event with your dad today. Uh, and he said, uh, unfortunately, he had left his like satchel with his passport, money, medicine on the tour bus. And the tour bus had left. Mm. And, um, and so my dad's excited. He comes back to the concierge and he's like, Mr. Smith, please calm down. Uh, we, will, we will take care of this. And this is part of the Japanese culture. So 15 minutes later, that bus pulls up, guy walks out, hands him that satchel with everything in it. 
and the respect and the dignity and the honor that he received from everyone he interacted with in that time period was a game changer. So he mm. then left with, it was the leadership, not the Japanese people. Mm. And that was a really significant moment for him. Wow. Mm. <laughs> I feel like I need to, to, to take a second to, uh, to take that all in. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that. And, and so fast, let's fast forward a little bit. Sure. Um, getting into semiconductors, was that the next step? After the Army and hockey, was that immediate? Yeah, so I spent five, I, I met my commitment for West Point, five years in the service. I did an additional five years in the reserve. Um, as I was going through transition, I've had similar conversations with, with uh, veterans, and I, I believe I'm called at this point, Evan, in my life, to help hire and house veterans. And you'll hear both parts of that story. But when I was deciding to get out because I did not, um, I wanted my family stability. I didn't want to be moving every couple of years. And, mm. and, I, and I actually used that education to pay back, not to really have a career in the Army. Um, I'm very passionate about helping veterans now. And my dad and brother and two brothers have served, but never made it a career. And so I went through a headhunter that specialized in hiring military veterans with the similar educational background. I went through two, I'm sorry, two days, 17 interviews, 45 minutes apiece across all of these different industries. And I remember as I was going through it and told the headhunter, I said, I want manufacturing. I want to have the opportunity to lead people, process engineering. And, um, and I said, I don't want any sales because I just felt that um, the sales profession kind of lacked integrity. It was short term and I, I didn't want that. And the guy kept telling me, he goes, I hear you. I understand. Um, just go to one interview. And, uh, you know, sure enough, 34 years later, a good portion of my career has been in sales. But the gentleman I talked to had a similar background, West Point graduate, told me, he said, it's, it's not about transaction, it's about relationships. There's a common theme here as we go into the you know, homeless uh, community and situation. And he says, we'll be working on projects with customers for five or 10 years. And building that trust, project managing is really part of your job, not, not being a transactional sales. So um, that's where I started. I, and I do want to get to absolutely get to uh, covering a little bit more about veterans and uh, and, and homelessness and, and the unhoused, you know, issues and crises that, that we're facing. Um, but I do want to kind of get into the early stages of that career in, in semiconductors. Uh, first off, I'd love to better understand what is a semiconductor? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, years ago when I would go and visit members of Congress, which is a pretty significant part of my role right now, you know, the, the, the people I'd talk to were like, semiconductor chips, potato chips, what's the difference, you know? <laughs> and uh, there's a significant difference uh, in the fact that really it's in every aspect of our lives right now. We are not having this conversation or all of the equipment you have in this beautiful studio uh, without semiconductor chips. Uh, during the most recent COVID crisis, you know, people couldn't buy cars. Uh, and really the automobile is heading towards a moving computer. Uh, 
uh, with autonomous vehicles and, and all of the computer chips that enable that to really happen. And so semiconductor chips are the devices that allow us to communicate, to process information, uh, to running satellites, and really every aspect of our society right now are impacted by, by microelectronics. The market of which our customers who make chips, they use our equipment to make those chips, is about a half a trillion dollar market, 500 over 500 billion. Mm. And we think in the next five to seven, maybe 10 years on the outset, that's gonna double to about a trillion dollar market. Now these are companies, the top five, six companies dominate a significant portion of that half $500 billion market, probably in the 60, 70, 75%. Mm. So you've got to engage, it's not a consumer driven uh, business. You've got to partner with those top six and that, that is a long-term relationship. You're solving problems together. But most recently, you know, the geopolitical tension, the strategic competition with the U.S. and China has taken a global industry where you had a global supply chain that drove out efficiencies and made it very, very effective, which is now at the forefront of this tension around artificial intelligence, quantum computing, defense systems. And so what used to be a technology problem, let me help you solve that problem over a five or 10 year period, has now been faced with some limitations on what equipment we can sell uh, to certain countries uh, due to the tension with uh, the U.S. and China in particular. Okay, and so you you mentioned several different types of technology that uh, use semiconductors, and I'm sure we haven't even scratched the surface of, of that. Uh, is, there, is there a differing level of complexity, let's say, from your smart washing machine to... Uh, I don't know, a fighter jet. <laughs> well, you're a smart guy. But, you know, in some in some ways, it'll surprise you that even in our fighter jets, some of the sensors are maybe legacy uh, mm. type of technology. Um, and let me give you an example. If you, t- if you were to take a look at, like, the, f- the major components of chips that go into your cell phone, okay? I'm going to break it up into three or four areas to try to give you a broader area of what the, what the industry is doing. Please. If we look at the first aspect, if you think of the brains behind your computer or your phone, we call that a logic. So it's, it's going to provide this input and output and process things to help that device operate, okay? So logic is, is typically provided for a company um, that manufactures the own, their own chips like Intel, okay? Intel inside uh, and, and the microprocessors. There's also logic providers that what we call our fabulous designers, okay? And so actually a, a very large uh, logic processor that doesn't manufacture their own chips is Apple. Hmm. So, you know, as I look at your Apple computer there, the, the brains of that device is actually designed by Apple, but they send it to a foundry. Okay, they found someone to manufacture their equipment. And that's a company called Taiwan Semiconductor. Hmm. Now, Taiwan Semiconductor is the leading edge provider of microchips. Okay, and so when you talk about some of the geopolitical tensions with Taiwan and China, this is at the forefront of that. There's a great book out right now called Chip Wars, Hmm. and it kind of explains the nature of how this unfolded. Um, but Taiwan Semiconductor is providing that leading technology for companies like Apple, Qualcomm, artificial intelligence. The leader in that right now is, is NVIDIA. 
advanced micro devices. Here in Austin, you got Silicon Labs. So there's a lot of these companies that they've provided expertise in designing and they've, they've farmed out that manufacturing. So logic, foundry, and then memory. And there's two primary types of memory. There's dynamic memory or DRAM you may hear. And that is the, the quick memory between that logic and the rest of the device. And then there's more longer-term storage, which is like NAND. Uh, and that is for your videos and your pictures. And, and that provides a different type of storage on your device. And, and it's amazing what we have on a phone right now, how that has evolved to truly the volume of what you can store on that device. So those are the major components. Automotive sector has different things, defense um, you know, we still, we still have equipment that's been out there 30, 40 years that are producing devices at different sizes of uh, what we call a wafer mm. or a semiconductor uh, wafer that then is diced up after it's processed and put into these little chips. Wow. Thank you. I needed that. I'm sure the listeners, some listeners will have needed that as well. Uh, you know, so do we have, do we have the skilled market or the skilled labor here to, to produce that? Is it, what, what does that look like? Well, given this geopolitical tension, uh, the U.S. government and industry um, have been working together under what we call the CHIPS Act. So a year ago, uh, President Biden signed into to law the CHIPS Act, which is an incentive for these semiconductor companies to bring their manufacturing back to the U.S. So there's, unlike any time in my 34-year career, we have these major manufacturing sites going up throughout the country. The hubs right now, Austin, Texas has got a major uh, facility being produced up, actually just outside of Austin, up in Taylor, so Samsung. Up in Dallas, Texas Instruments is providing a very significant expansion. Uh, then in Arizona, you've got Taiwan Semiconductor moving out of Taiwan and, and putting together a very advanced manufacturing facility in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. Intel is all over the United States. So they have a major presence up in the Northwest, up in Portland, Phoenix. And then they've, they've announced a Greenfield site as part of the CHIPS Act in, in Ohio. Micron Technology, memory provider, it's up in Boise, Idaho, and they just announced a $100 billion investment up in New York. So you got these hubs, New York, Texas, Ohio, Arizona, and up in the Northwest with both Boise, Idaho, and, and, uh, and up in Portland that are now scaling like I've never seen before. And so the CHIPS Act, $53 billion, is trying to incentivize them to come back and offset some of the geo, um, I should say, geoeconomic changes between different parts of the world in Asia, hmm. uh, and to offset some of those cost differences that caused them to start manufacturing other parts of the world, primarily Taiwan, Korea, and China. And uh, we'll onshore it back here for really national security reasons, supply chain reasons, um, and bring that manufacturing back here. I saw a statistic, and, and it might have actually been from one of your interviews, that uh, we used to have 37% uh, of the manufacturing of, of chips in Texas, and, and uh, sorry, in, in, in the U.S., and now we're down to about 12% at, at the moment. Is that, is that still an accurate statistic? Yeah, and I think this will move that needle. Um, you know, and then as the market expands, I, I think this will move the needle. Um, there's a lot of projects going on. In fact, yesterday I was in a conversation. They talked about, you know, the microchip was invented here in Texas with Jack Kilby. 
Uh, there's debate on whether it's in Texas or California with uh, Bob Noyce, but um, but yeah, you know, 50, 60 years ago, this was this was invented in the U.S. Wow. And we need to bring the manufacturing back here. I'm sure us Texans will take credit for that. Absolutely. So, <laughs> um, so you you mentioned a kind of a buzz buzz term there, uh, greenfield projects. Does does that mean that there is no supporting infrastructure around where that's being built, or what does what does that mean? Uh, yeah, it's really breaking ground in, in brand new farmland, or you know, it's in, it's in a space that's that doesn't have the infrastructure presence uh, to build a, a semiconductor manufacturing facility. Okay. All right. Thank you. And and so before we pivot a little bit more into what some of the outputs are um, from from your business, you know, in, into the community and, and, and building, I, I'd love to ask, you've been in this industry for, for a lot longer than most folks have. Yeah. Uh, has that always been a uh, nice... Uh, you know, high trajectory, uh, I guess facing you, I mean, has that always been a, a, um, an easy industry to scale and grow? Have there been, have there been challenges along the way? What, what, tell me a little bit about your experiences in leadership and, and kind of the ups and downs of that industry, if you don't mind. Well, you know, if you've been to an economic course, economic 101, supply and demand, this industry fits that model perfectly, mm-hmm. you know, so, um, the growth curve, isn't at the 45 degree angle I just described early, early part of this conversation going from a half a trillion to a trillion, um, but it was really a sine curve. And it was because the early adopters, early providers of that technology may have heard of Moore's law, like every two years, the devices will double the density at a lower price. And that's been the, the tendency for, for decades. Mm. And so as you're trying to provide that additional device, that newer device, that you know, latest and greatest microprocessor or, or another gigabit of memory, um, early providers of that technology get premium pricing. So everybody's chasing that and they're building capacity. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is then it gets oversupplied and then the prices drop and then then you go through this cycle. It's almost like a sine curve, peaks mm-hmm. and valleys. Um, the amplitude of those sine curves now are much tighter and we've been on a growth curve until the pause right now this year, uh, probably over the last five to seven years of, of a pretty continual growth. Um, COVID drove a significant growth in our business. And it was because we went to working out of our homes. We had remote learning. Uh, we had to put in the, the data centers to, to enable that. People were buying additional devices, both phones and computers, to adapt to the COVID environment. And, uh, and so that caused some of the challenges with people not getting chips uh, from the automotive industry. Automotive industry uh, is just in time, and they perfected that over the last couple of decades. Well, when they shot that off at the beginning of COVID, the demand or the capacity was filled with all of this other demand. Okay, so all of a sudden, you know, our customers... They, they had huge demand from data centers and mobile devices and computers and, and other things. And so then when the automotive industry wanted to turn that back on because they started to see the demand, they were kind of like getting to the back of the line. And so created some challenges there within the supply chain. Uh, and so those are some of the things that we see. So side curves and then the technology. We, we've continued to run into roadblocks and the innovative nature of, of the Western world and the U.S. Um, has overcome those repeatedly. And so like right now, we're, we're in the, like the five nanometer, three nanometer, two nanometer. We're manipulating atoms. 
And you're going to see, you know, billions of transistors or device on or off devices, billions of those on, on a chip the size of your thumbnail. And I've been in this business a long time. My, my mind continually is just like uh, overwhelmed with what the capacity and capability of our industry. Wow. I, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, and I know that we're going to start moving into some topics that are a little bit more about um, vulnerable folks. Yeah. That uh, that we have a passion for and that you specifically have a passion for. Before we get into that, I'm going to ask for a moment of vulnerability from you, though. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, feel free to not answer this question, but if, if, you, if you're willing. Uh, since you've been called to leadership, I think a lot of, there's a lot of fear of folks that are called to leadership about the fear of failure. Mm. Right? And, and how, um, how that's such a, um, a limiting um, mindset to potential leaders and maybe even current leaders. Have you had any moments along that journey where maybe failure has defined you or helped define the, the, your career path from there on out? How much time do you have? <laughs> you can stick to as many as you want. <laughs> I, I, I can think of two very significant ones. Um, when I was in the Army, um, I just got out of the academy and they send you to a school to train you in the profession that you'll you'll lead and mine was in tanks okay so you spend about six months you know then going from an academic environment into a practical applications of how you maneuver and execute and and so when i came to my first unit at fort hood you know what one of the traditions of a new leader of a new lieutenant uh, and so you're, t what, 22, 23 years old. You're going to lead a platoon. You've got a, a um, platoon sergeant that's probably got 17 to 20 years of experience. Mine was a Vietnam veteran. You know, so here you got this young kid, myself, and this seasoned veteran. And that's the way the Army works. You know, you got non-commissioned officers and officers. And so what the tradition was is you went out to your first field problem is you took the junior lieutenant and you and you gave him the task to go out and do a road march and you know let him get lost in last <laughs> land navigation. So we're going to humble you immediately and mm -hmm. and see how you respond to that. And so um, sure enough, my first field problem, I knew it was coming. Uh, I had prepared. I wanted to make sure I could could display that I was professional and and could uh, earn the respect of my team. And uh, Captain Corda was my commander, and, and we went to the operations order, and, and I was ready. Hey, give me the mission. And then when we got there, he said, all right, Smith's going to lead the, the, the uh, mission tonight to the destination, but we're not going to do it at 3 o'clock. We're going to do it at 2100 in the dark. So I had reconned, I had gotten out my Jeep, I had my maps. This is prior to GPSs now. So this is, you actually had to read a map and figure the contours of getting there. And, and I, my panic button uh, went off, you know, because I'd done all this preparation. So I, I really felt I was going to fail. And how was I going to respond to that? And so I walked away from that order. And then I felt, all right, I got I to gotta dig in. I got to do this. And, and the first sergeant even more senior, like the captain's company commander's first sergeant, Jesse Copeland. This is a long time ago. And Jesse comes up to me and he goes, hey, LT, do you want some help? 
well, it's my pride. Am I going to say, no, I got it. Am I going to risk that? And, and so that's where you have to make some decisions at times of, am I going to be willing and vulnerable to ask for some help? Because I, I don't know everything. Hmm. And I said, yeah, top man, I need some help. He gave me a couple practical things. So he says, hey, you know, hey, LT. He says, you know, your driver, the odometer on your tanks in kilometers, it's not miles. And the grid on your map is in kilometers. Those squares are in kilometers. Oh, by the way, you know, your 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 gunner, when he holds, you know, the toggles on the on the turret, he says, We have a stabilizer, and if you put your turret pointed with your compass in the direction you're supposed to go, it will stay there. Hmm. So you work as a team, your gunner will hold, you follow the gun tube, you got your azimuth, and Private Reed, my driver, is going to tell you, LT, every time that kilometer goes to another click. Wow. And you will, you will know exactly where you're going. <laughs> and sure enough, um, got him to where I needed to do, which defied all that logic. Hmm. So I fast forward I was then in charge of a range and I, I made a mistake because I was in charge. I didn't go back and check all my tanks to make sure the, the ammunition was out of our tanks. And it's like a cardinal sin if you go back to the mortar pool and, and it's kind of like a loaded gun, but it's 120 millimeter, okay? <laughs> so sure enough, I'm distracted, didn't check all my tanks and that before they were heading back to the motor pool and uh, you certainly don't want a tank loaded with, with uh, ammunition in a motor pool. And um, when I got back to the motor pool, we went back to accountability and, and uh, found that my, my tank had, had ammunition on it. And this is probably months later, you know, so that I talk about the, you know, being humble enough to ask for some help. This was months later and I'd established some credibility and reputation with the, the leadership there. And that was so severe, the colonel was going to give me like punishment that could ruin my career, actually, mm. the fact that I had that ammunition. Well, Jesse Copeland went to Colonel Keller and he says, Colonel, I think this young man's got some potential. Don't ruin his career over this one mistake. And um, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. So then how do we create um, excellence instead of perfection? How do we create an environment where people can learn from their mistakes? We call them in the Army after action reviews. And you always start, when you left an operation, you said, hey, what went well? And you have your whole platoon and everyone can provide input. But what can we do better? Hmm. So that was my, my uh, significant failure in the Army that kind of shaped me. And then how do I treat other people in that space? Allow space for failure. Kind of fast to fail when we're dealing with technology. But then the low point of my career was probably 12 or 13 years ago when I got a call that one of my teammates um, had plumbed the line incorrectly at a customer site and uh, caused um, a contamination of the factory and uh, caused damage to the product and the customer in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So sometimes when I meet with young people like you or others and I, I ask them, hey, what was the cost of your biggest mistake that you survived? Hmm. You know, $100, $1,000, you know, and, and it's really fun to kind of have that dialogue as you're, you're sharing. And uh, I said, I, I survived a multi-hundred million dollar mistake. Wow. And it caused you to pause. 
that's kind of the company I work for. Uh, I thought it, I thought I'd be fired. Probably could be justified for that as the leader of a company that caused that kind of damage. But out of the ashes of that problem, we created what we call Journey to Excellence. And my my um, colleague and I went and said, hey, what caused this problem? And from a top down, we were like, you follow procedure or you stop the work, kind of like pulling the cord on a Toyota manufacturing site, you know? And so as we were meeting with hundreds of people over shifts and kind of communicated, follow that procedure, stop work. Any questions? 45 minutes, hands are raised. Well, what if the documentation documentation's in Japanese? What if the customer locks down that documentation? What if we don't have Wi-Fi access? What if we did it? Mm. And before you know it, you, you know people want to do the right thing, right. but then we create some limitations. And so in the end, when we came back to the customer and said, you know, they often ask the question, how are you going to prevent this from ever happening again? Mm-hmm. Okay. And we came back with this top-down solution. He said, you know, did you run back by the field to see if that was going to be an adequate, see if they could actually implement your solution? Very humbling experience because I had to say no. Hmm. So we created this competitive differentiated process now where we select about a dozen employees. We get them for their character, their competence, and their willingness to help solve the problem. Over 14 years, we've probably run 100 people through that process. I should say 100 projects and more than 100 people. Hmm. And it's changed our company. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing. So you have a uh, a career in, I would say, being called to solve help solve complex issues, right? And uh, and uh, I think identify what you've you've mentioned also is is identifying people that want to do the right thing or want to improve their situation. And I'd like to to kind of start off with with this uh, this call to help veterans because you did mention that. A little bit earlier, and uh, I, I understand that uh, you guys get significant interest in, in helping them, uh, helping veterans get jobs and, and get homes. But uh, how is that a good fit for your industry, the veterans coming into your industry? Well, it's part of my story. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you talk to people who used to run around in tanks or repair tanks and say, "Hey, I want you to manipulate atoms and make microchips." Uh, you know, I, I think I'll go work in a manufacturing, you know, I'll go repair cars or drive trucks. Hmm. Um, you know, so it's intimidating industry. Um, but it's been a wonderful career for me. Um, great paying jobs, great industry, smart people. I, I couldn't have had a better career from my perspective. So I want to give that opportunity to, to veterans that may be intimidated by the industry. Uh, we want to hire people with the attributes that come from a military experience. Uh, we can train you. <laughs> and um, so when you look at teamwork and discipline and commitment and competitive nature and, uh, uh, you know, they're willing to suffer through some things at times uh, and still never give up. You know, so those attributes uh, are really important to solve difficult problems <laughs> and to never give up as we continue to provide, I mean, I know you want to go back to a, a 486 computer, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so we have to be able to keep up with the demand of the consumer. And, um, and we like those attributes. I, I like to split it up into thirds, you know, like bachelors and above degreed um, f- type of uh, 30, 33% in that space. 
um, and want to uh, have the, the technical schools, um, maybe associate's degrees or technical colleges, and then a, a 20 or 30 percent of our veteran population is kind of the demographic from a very um, basic target mm-hmm. uh, when we look at the talent that we're trying to recruit, hire, train, retain. That's neat. And do, do you find any uh, advantages to, to hiring veterans? Yeah, I'm 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 very biased, I would say, <laughs> um, but I also um, uh, equal opportunities across all services, like Navy nukes <laughs> and and, uh, and airmen and airwomen, and actually the the military service is a good source of diversity and and talent and leadership. And so um, we found some amazing people uh, that uh, are in our industry. Well, let's because this podcast is about legacy, right, and breaking old old legacies, making new ones, and using those platforms to make uh, what I'd consider meaningful investments in current and future generations. Uh, I'd love to move to a topic that I think can be a bit uncomfortable, uh, and that is talking about um, homelessness, the unhoused, and and um, you know, how can we uh, educate ourselves and actually take action on that education um, and, and learn a little bit about uh, your history with that. With that, I'd love to really talk about what your your involvement has been, uh, how that became a calling of yours with, with, the, with, with the homeless crises abound and, and, um, and how you kind of gained a heart for that issue. Evan, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. This is an important part of my life, and and it comes really from my faith journey, also. So I'm I can't I can't tell this story without being vulnerable in that space, actually. So about 15 years ago, you know, I live right down the road from where we're having this conversation. About 15 years ago, uh, my wife and I were part of a church plant, and we were going to go down to the center of Austin and care for the poor and the oppressed, the widow, the orphan, and, and it was an amazing experience. And, and people ended up adopting from all over the world. Uh, we were working in nursing homes. Uh, I started to work with people out of prison and the homeless community. And then we actually had several people become international missionaries out of this really small group of people, like maybe 100 people. And so when we started to connect and, and work with the homeless, actually I first started picking up like guys that were, they were at a, this place called the Push Up. And that was like a 90 day transitional housing for people coming out of prison. And then then you started to see people on the sides of the streets and I literally go down to their, their dwelling and pick them up and, and bring them back for Sunday night services. And we always had a meal together and, and just started to build those relationships. Well, that's where I met Mobilos and Fishes 15 years ago. And Mobilos and Fishes, over their 25-year journey now, we're celebrating 25 years this fall with the founder, Alan Graham, and, and five other gentlemen. Over that 25-year journey, uh, they've fed six and a half, six point two, six point three million 6.3 million meals uh, to the Austin community. So I got exposed to it, and there was a guy named Bren Wilson, and I uh, started to do monthly truck runs with him. We would go to four or five different destinations around the city and feed people out of the out of this Mobilos and Fishes truck. Well, you've got a little bit of my background, all right? Disciplined, West Point, lead a company. There's a certain mentality there, all right? And so I would come into this, into this opportunity. It was like, how could I effectively and efficiently feed as many people as possible in the least amount of time, okay? So I'm like, line up, behave, no fighting. And, uh, and my buddy Bren is literally on the curb, and he knows the person's name. He knows their drug of choice. He knows their story. Mm. He knows their hometown. 
And uh, I, I, I doubt that I could even uh, mention a name. And I'm not proud of that. That's the vulnerability of I was really transactional and brand showed me a side of, of being relational. And so as you start to go through this and you meet people on the street and you start to build these relationships, my wife and I, Jimmy was our first candidate. We started to put him in like a hotel, uh, you know, for, for weeks at a time. We tried to get then Mobilism Fishes, as they evolved the ministry, they started to put people in RV parks like a cul-de-sac and they'd have four or five you know, our RVs and they put them in there. And, and that was the beginning of trying to get them not just a four or five hour food uh, gap to get them through that day. Uh, but now we're starting to get them off the street and into a place where they can have shelter and safety and, and, and heal from the ravages of trauma that they've experienced. Mm. And, um, and so that was the beginning of the exposure. Eventually, um, you know, we were part of, uh, uh, a small group that we went out and said, hey, can we, as part of our church, we want to know, grow, and serve. Could our small group go out and this community that was breaking ground 10 years ago and uh, our service opportunity was maybe start to build relationships there. And and before we know it, we're in Alan Graham's house and trying to decide whether to discern where we're going to live out there. And we moved from our 3,900 square foot home on three acres right down the road from you, you know, into a 380 square foot RV for, for a number of years and, and lived in a community of, of formerly homeless people we call Community First. Wow. Okay. So before, before we get into that, I have to ask, making this move, uh, was that, were you more hesitant or was your wife more hesitant to make that move? Oh man, you're really asking me to vulnerable here <laughs> now. Um, so... My wife has a, has a medical condition that, that flares up. She has lupus. Hmm. And, and so there's occasionally she has these flares that, that, that take her out for a while. And so um, I was at Alan Graham's house with maybe 30, 30 people. That night it was the discernment night. Are you in or are you out? Uh, to go and, and be what we call missional, but they're like an intentional neighbor. We're going to love God and love people, and we're going to live in that community and, and just be hospitable and care and, and just navigate it with your gifts. So I'm at Alan's house, and um, actually, we, Wendy and I, were, were my wife, we were planning to support friends of ours that already had committed to live there. So they were going to say yes, and we were going to be you know prayerful support, financial support. We were going to be partners in this whole deal where he's going around the circle and he stops at this young woman who's on Skype at the time. This is a few years ago. And she was engaged to a friend of mine that um, they were going to be newlyweds and move into an RV on this property. You know, so that's one extreme. But she said a quote that really pierced my heart. And it said, she said, um, you know, I had a professor in college that said, you really should live your life as if it doesn't make sense without the gospel. Hmm. Caused me to pause. My job, my house, my kids. As I as I mentally went through an assessment, I was like, "Does it make more sense by by God's standard or by the world's standard?" Hmm. And it, it, you know, caused me to pause. But unfortunately, I wasn't obedient to that pause or calling or prompting. Alan comes to me, you know, so it's like I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I can't. You know, there was really an interesting evening comes to me and he goes, and I've known Alan for quite a while at this point. And he goes, Larry, in or out? Wendy's not with me. Alan, I'll give you my time, my talents and treasures. I am not going to live in that community. Hey, that's fine. I need all of that. 
So I leave, I drive home that night, just kind of pondering that whole experience. I go to church the next day. And the pastor's preaching about caring for the poor and the oppressed and the widow and the orphan. And you don't have to go to Africa. You can go to the east side of Austin and carry out this calling. So those are two whacks over the head. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I really felt the prompting of, we need to do something different here. And I came home. Wendy wasn't at church that day either. She's still recovering from the flare. And I came home and I said, hey, Wendy, I, I think we're supposed to go live out in that community. And she goes, well, it's about time. Oh. <laughs> Was that the third whack? <laughs> so then disobedience, disobedience, obedience. The next weekend we went and bought an RV. Hmm. And then it stayed in storage for nine months while the, the property was getting prepared. And, um, and so calling, we all have a calling and giftedness and resources. What standard are we applying it to? Is it only for our own? Is the legacy how selfish we can behave? Is the legacy that we were faithful and good stewards of what God has given us with time, talents, and treasures? Where does that legacy show up? And so we moved on the property. We lived in the RV for about uh, two and a half, three years. And then my wife designed a tiny home. So we went from this, you know, 380 square foot RV to a, to a 540 square foot tiny home. I call it the Taj Mawendi. <laughs> and um, it's amazing what you can do with just a uh, uh, smaller space. Wow. I, I, I mean, another lesson is that uh, our wives certainly make us better. <laughs> Amen. Um, so is, uh, if I remember correctly, I, I think you told me about some form of initiation period to be able to, or maybe an overnight. Ah, that was, uh, so I'm on the board of directors. I'm currently a chairman of the board for Mobilism Fishes. Okay. My final interview to join the board was 24 hours on the street with Alan Graham. Oh boy. Okay. Let's, let's, let's hop into that if you don't mind. <laughs> okay. So there's no initiation or hazing to get on the property, but that was my final interview mm. um, uh, to join the board of directors of Mobilism Fishes, which I've had the honor of serving for a number of years. Okay. Thanks for, thanks for uh, giving me some clarity around that. Um, I, I, I have to say, I don't, I don't know that's a, uh, that is something that I'm willing to, uh, or ready to take up, but uh, I, Maybe that's maybe that's where I need to <laughs> check my heart. <laughs> I was not either. Uh, yeah, so we spent 24 hours on the street, no food, no um, money, no phone, um, like a pad to sleep on and a change of socks, you know, like a backpack. Hmm. Um, started at Zilker Park, and I took a meal off a truck that I'd been serving off a Mobilos and Fishes truck. Got myself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and some chips and, and a drink and was a recipient of that ministry before we started our, our 24-hour journey. And um, yeah, very unique experience. Let's face it. You need to take better care of yourself. And you don't make the time. One week you neglect your fitness goals and the next week you neglect your nutrition goals. But you have pre-workouts and supplements and convenient meal prep and food delivery options so lack of time is usually the root cause. So what about your hair? Well, now there's an on-the-go solution for you. Freewell has been called the pre-workout for your hair. But it doesn't just work for an hour. It works all day. 
Freewell's Power Gloss delivers moisture while repairing your hair from root to tip and balancing your scalp for the ultimate and best hair health. This is made for everyone, and fellas, this is what I use to style my hair most days. Plus, you're not only helping yourself and the people who look at you, you're helping the world. And that's why Freewell gives a portion of all revenues to fight human trafficking on the ground. Use my code SUCCESSOR, that's S-X-S-S-R, for 20% off your order today at livefreewell.com. Use my code SUCCESSOR, that's S-X-S-S-R, for 20% off your order today at livefreewell.com. Hmm. Wow. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's probably a lot more we can unpack there, um, but I, I'd like to also get into... Um, really uh, our primary focus, and, and that is uh, on, on the folks that are actually dealing with this every single day. Um, first off, I want to I ask, you know, I, I noticed that the, some of the language changed from, you know, homeless, and, uh, the homeless to the unhoused, or am I using that terminology correctly? What's, what's the, is there, is there a change in some of the language? And if so, what's, what's the, what's the purpose behind that? So in our community, they've changed from homeless to unhoused. So if the problem statement is we have unhoused people, what's the solution? A house. House them. We believe with our experience and my 15 years experience and, and Mobilism Fish's 25-year experience that the primary cause of homelessness is not housing, but it's the catastrophic loss of family. Think, think about that. Hmm. Okay. As you experience people on the street, we all make assumptions, okay? But we believe that they're at the end of a broken system, but primarily that, that family unit. We all have addiction issues and mental health issues in our family. I'd be surprised that anybody that's listening to this podcast doesn't have that within their family unit. Mm. But most of those family units have a safety net that prevents these individuals from ultimately ending on the street. And if that's the primary cause of it, we believe housing will not solve homelessness or mitigate it, but community will. And so the property of where we currently house uh, about 400 plus neighbors, formerly homeless, formerly chronically homeless neighbors in a 52 acre community of tiny homes, RVs and eclectic uh, entrepreneurial additions, um, in this beautiful community where they have ownership, they have the opportunity to heal, they have people that are surrounding them with love. We have volunteers pre-COVID, like 11,000 volunteers that are part of this community. So that's the key component is that it, we become, as opposed to the biological family, we are now becoming this nuclear family that can help them heal. We're not there to fix them, and that's what we want to do, you know? <laughs> But it's, it's also a difference between doing and being. Uh, being the hands and feet of, of Christ, being relational, uh, being engaged in uh, the messiness of homelessness. Hmm. And um, that's, that's a couple of points that we differentiate ourselves relative to a government solution that is to get them into housing. Now, they do want to provide surrounding services, but if you take dysfunctional individuals that are broken and just relocate them from the street into a a revamped hotel or apartment without 
healthy, not perfect community, but healthy community and surround services in there, um, it's going to be, you're going to have a hard time uh, seeing people heal from that. Wow. And was this model that we're aware of, was was this model started here in Austin or this was, this was kind of the, the birthplace of this? Model? Yeah. Yeah. And Alan's an entrepreneur, you know, he was called 25 years to go start feeding the homeless and he's done it for 25 years and he sacrificed he and his wife, Trish are, are saints, you know, in my mind. And, um, they poured into this, but you know, when you talk about calling and legacy, you know what his profession was before he was called to feed the homeless? What's that? Real estate developer. <laughs> wow. Okay. Okay. That's pretty rich. You've been to the site, right? Oh yeah. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. Unbelievable. It's amazing. Yeah, and we're definitely gonna gonna see a, see a video clip of of how amazing it is too, because um, I was I was a bit shocked, uh, you know, when I, when I heard about the property, and you know, people say it's oh it's beautiful, there's a lot of cool things going on. You, just, you can't even you can't even uh, begin to scratch the surface uh, without being there. So as a leader, as an influencer, you know, we've um, one of my former employees at Tokyo Electron is a staff member at Mobiles and Fishes now, and I'm very grateful for her of sacrificing and using her gifts in a different way. She leads our replication model. So she has been responsible in our team, but she's the leader of this group that has trained over 600 people from 200 cities. Really? So rather than us scatter all over the country and train people, we invite them to stay on the property in a tiny home for three days. And we go through our mission, vision, values, fundraising, and how we currently are, are leading this effort. And uh, we've got about uh, a dozen, what I would consider, consider advanced replicators, six that have been doing it for a number of years. And then that's one of the passions I love to continue to engage with is how do we help those individuals scale and not copy Mm-hmm. but replicate. So some you may have, up in Minnesota, there's a sacred settlements and there's a woman that did her PhD, uh, Gabrielle Claudus. I love that woman. And she came and studied our model and she contrasted housing first, which initiated in the Reagan eras back in the 80s, pushed them out into the community and, and housing first versus literally community first in Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. PhD study on that. Alan, as she was spending time with us and interviewed us and, and lived in the community for weeks, said, get one person off the street. I love your study. I love you're going to be a doctor. Get one person off the street. She is now, I was there a couple weeks ago up in Minneapolis. She's got three churches that are putting tiny homes on their church parking lots and extra property. Hmm. She's worked for four years to change the legislation. January 1st, they will. They they couldn't with zoning issues put put RVs or tiny homes on their property. It was all restricted. Hmm. And then now, uh, the Lutheran Church has issued like a referendum or a, a proclamation is a better statement that they all should consider a sacred settlement on their property in Minnesota. Boom. Get one person. You and I can can scale one. Right. Community first is overwhelming with the scale. <laughs> But we're replicating people that are doing it at a manageable level. That's unbelievable. And and so if if we were to look at the uh, take a best guess from the current uh, population of, of of folks that are that are homeless throughout the U.S., um, let's just take Austin uh, as an as an example. Do, do we have an idea of what kind of what percentage we might be able to get 
off of off of the streets or out of chronic homelessness? You know, the, the number is politically charged a little bit, so I'm not going to throw out a number, but okay. but I'll give you a range, let's say. And I think I think um, the U.S. population is about half a million people. Hmm. Okay, I believe in Austin we're talking in the thousands. You know couple of thousand to mid maybe five again and they and they do some assessments they go out to the camps and they do assessment i don't know if it's annual or every other you know every couple of years but i think it's on an annual basis just to kind of assess what's happening in that space Hmm. we currently with phase one and phase two we have 400 heading towards 500 we have two more pieces of property we've broken ground across the street from the current site and uh, we'll probably have another 500 there. And before we're done with phase four with 76 acres uh, down on Burleson Road, uh, we'll probably 1,800 to 2,000 people. Uh, I did mention chronically homeless. So um, we're laser focused on people that have been homeless for at least a year or multiple years. Mm-hmm. And it's not likely they'll get off the street due to a mental or physical disability. So we're not, we're not doing everybody. And they are, so that that demographic or that focus, um, our average age is fifty eight years old, and average time on the street is ten years. Wow! So that's why we're working with a very specific population, the least of these. They're not with us. They're not probably gonna. They'll probably die on the streets. And so we treat them, you know, we want them to be known. We want them to be loved. I think part of the tour, you probably got to see our columbarium. This is not transitional housing. This is their home mm-hmm. to the point that when they pass and we've had people pass with dignity and love, we honor them and their, and their ashes are on our property versus if they were to pass on the street, you know, they're going to they're gonna end up in an unmarked grave somewhere in our city. Mm. Unreal. Um, <laughs> it's another one of those moments I feel like I need to just, just take a pause and you know even though I've been there I think it's still it still is um, it's it's a mix of exciting what's what's going on and there's there's still a sense of mourning around that it's that it the problem that it that it has become and um, you know meeting some of the folks on the property I think was really changed my uh, perception and the amount of pride that they took in, in, in what they've been able to accomplish there in, in their life. Now, do, do you see people that uh, then move from Community First out into uh, housing, or is that, is, that, is that part of the plan as well? It's not. You know, it is their home. It's, their, you know, it's, um, it's permanent housing, not transitional. We've had people leave. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's some basic rules, follow the law of the land, you know, follow the, like the HOA rules of the community and you got to pay rent. Hmm. So there's some ownership in there yeah. versus, and just a handout. So they got some skin in the game there. And then we provide opportunities for them to, to work on the property, earn dignified income versus flying a sign. Um, some of my, my favorite moments when you come onto the property, you may see somebody in a wheelchair with some missing limbs from diabetes and some challenges there. And they got a leaf blower and they're, you know, some, <laughs> one, of, one of our neighbors may have mowed the lawn and, and he's blowing the, the grass clippings off um, the driveways and, and the roadways of our community. Mm. And so it could be in... Uh, art, the innovation hub could be in the gardens, could be in food preparation. We have an outdoor theater from the Alamo Draft House, so they they could be working there. We have a bed and breakfast that needs to be cleaned. 
and sheets washed. Um, all of those are opportunities for our, our neighbors to engage and be part of our, our really our vision is to empower communities into a lifestyle of service with the homeless. Now we do a lot of things to carry out that vision, but it's, it's to empower the community of Austin, Texas, the community of the United States. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. To get into that mission. That's fascinating. I, you know, and we're going to, uh, in just a couple minutes, jump into a, a, a portion of a video that, that highlights a few of the things that you mentioned. But uh, I, I will encourage you know listeners now and later uh, to do the same thing. That is, go watch the full video. I'll have uh, all the links uh, in the you know in the um, in the description of the video as well that, that we talk about today. Uh, but uh, it is worth watching. And uh, you know, take take aside a few minutes. Uh, put 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 aside some distractions and, and really take it all in. Um, you know and. Because a part of what my calling is, um, my part of my calling is to discuss uh, fatherless homes yeah. right? and, and the impacts of those, and and those may or may not be aligned with you know the catastrophic loss of family. Um, but a few statistics I found out that I found that stood out to me was it says ninety uh, percent of all runaway and homeless children come from fatherless homes, uh, and then seventy five percent of adolescents in substance abuse centers come from fatherless homes and then here's where it gets a little bit crazier is that um you know children that live in fatherless homes are 279 percent more likely to deal drugs or carry firearms for offensive purposes and then 85 percent of youth who are currently in prison grew up in a fatherless home and and why while those stood out to me is that i with every one of those statistics i'm seeing an increasing risk of ending up in a situation where you you can't pay your bills you're estranged from family and you're, you're stuck in a situation that you feel like you can never recover from catastrophic loss of family is what you've just described with the absence of leadership and unity mm -hmm. um, those are statistics that at the end of that broken system they end up living with us mm. all right well I I'm, I'm hoping that uh, you know through conversations like this and and actionable items that, co that come out of conversations like this uh, that you know we can begin uh, as a community tackling the problem on both sides. <laughs> and the thing I like about some of our replicators is they're getting creative of, all right, rather than housing or um, bringing the homeless into our community where they can heal, why don't we get upstream? You know, so like one of the things you described is like um, one of our partners is uh, putting tiny homes on their church property for kids aging out of the foster system. Oh, wow. Okay. So we know the foster system has a high percentage of, because of the lack of family and parents and those kinds of things, or maybe they've been placed an average of 17, you know, families throughout mm. their, their foster experience. And um, so how do we create that, that uh, forged family that can fill in for the gaps in leadership fathers you know, unified families. How do we? How do we create and encourage them uh, to, to to for mentors or trainers or you know things like that? And so, actually, my daughter is a foster parent. So we've now experienced over the last six years of of having a foster grandchild and working through the legal system and child protective services and the families and stuff. And uh, one of the things that we had to go through uh, to literally be able to babysit our our grand daughter is we used uh, an agency to get certified and we do it on, a, on an annual basis but it's called fostering hope hmm. and we went through this training 
to be able to babysit. And they had a social worker there that um, helped us, uh, coach us on how to care for kids from hard places, okay? Mm-hmm. And maybe trauma, abuse, you know, the stories are pretty horrific. Uh, but the training was amazing. So my wife and I are, you know, we've been married 35 years, raised two adult daughters, and, and we're going through this training, and we're like, did that wrong? <laughs> did did that one really wrong? Oh, didn't even know about that one. You know, and so I was trying to think through how could we be more proactive? Mm. You know, and I don't know if it's in communities or influencers or churches or civic centers or whatever, but I was like, man, that training they gave to us so that we could babysit would be so invaluable to those parents mm. or single moms or single dads or whatever that looks like to give them more skills. Or you bring alongside a mentor or a coach or, you know, it takes a village. We've heard that a lot of times. And that has political ramifications. But really, a community can surround people and help raise these children. So um, those are other ways that we've got to think about it differently because otherwise we're going to be housing a lot of broken people. Well, I appreciate you sharing it. As a father of two daughters, I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'm going to wait a little while before I... <laughs> No, I probably should actually start early. And, and, yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's take a second. Let's uh, let's switch over to a, a clip of this video. Um, and I'd love to just, you know, for our viewers to have the opportunity to to see what Community First is all about. And we'll do a little recap and uh, and go from there. Perfect. Community First Village is a 51-acre master plan development that provides affordable permanent housing along with a supportive community for men and women who are transitioning out of chronic homelessness. Driven by a vision to empower the broader community into a lifestyle of service with the homeless, everything you see around the village is designed to foster relationships. One of the first things you see when entering the village is the neighborhood's large outdoor movie screen and amphitheater. The space can hold about 400 guests and provides the perfect setting for regular movie nights or other special events hosted at the village. Surrounding the amphitheater is the village's bed and breakfast operation known as the Community Inn. This eclectic mix of tiny home and RV units is open to the public for reservations through Airbnb or directly through the inn's website, making it possible for guests from around the world to experience Community First Village firsthand. In addition to providing guests with a unique overnight stay, the inn also provides work opportunities for some of the men and women living in the village. Their work with housekeeping and landscaping around the inn helps them earn a dignified income for their services. Just past the amphitheater and community inn is an on-site Capital Metro bus stop. With direct access to mass transportation, neighbors have an easier time getting around to other parts of the city as needed. Across the street from the bus stop is the Top for Family Health Resource Center. This on-site clinic, managed by MLF Partners, is the primary spot in the village where neighbors have access to integrated physical and mental health care services. Because of the clinic, men and women living in Community First Village can get many of their health care needs addressed on-site. Right next door to the clinic is the Community Market, a small convenience store of sorts. The market makes it possible for neighbors to purchase small grocery items and other basic needs. Importantly, the market is also a central hub for showcasing and selling the products and goods created by different artists and makers who live in the village. The handcrafted gifts you see in the market come out of Mobile Loaves and Fishes Community Works Program. 
Community Works provides opportunities for our formerly homeless neighbors to rediscover purpose and use their God-given talents to earn a dignified income. The program includes an art house where pottery, jewelry making, and fine art are brought to life, a blacksmith shop where one-of-a-kind metal works are produced, and a wood shop where carpentry skills are put to use. Whenever a product is purchased, the community first neighbor who made the product earns 100% of the profit from the sale. Community Works also includes different contract-based services around the village, such as groundskeeping and gardening, catering and concessions, or housekeeping and janitorial services. It even includes a car care operation, which is located just past the market in the village's very active maintenance building. Need an oil change or a car wash? Community First Car Care provides our neighbors who have a passion for servicing cars an opportunity to be of service to you. As you leave the maintenance building and move a bit deeper into the village, you're now entering a part of the neighborhood affectionately referred to as Tiny Town. This part of Community First is home to a diverse array of tiny homes, about 130 of them, designed and constructed by some of the city's most talented architects and builders, and arranged in such a way to help foster community among neighbors. Since none of the tiny homes has plumbing or full kitchens, this area of the village is connected to five outdoor kitchens. Residents have access to the kitchens anytime they want, providing them a spot where they can make great meals together and connect with other neighbors, human to human, heart to heart, through the fellowship of food. Neighbors in Tiny Town also have access to five nearby laundry, restroom, shower facilities. These buildings provide private showers and restrooms, along with many laundromats where residents can do their laundry however often they please. You might realize by now there's a little of everything in Community First Village. Other amenities around the property include a library that's open throughout the week, a tucked away chapel for social and spiritual connection, a barber shop for that occasional haircut, an on-site grill for delicious burgers and other meals, an outdoor dining area that we call the community table. We even have a dog park in the neighborhood for the many four-legged friends who live here as well. Man, <laughs> thanks for watching that with me. Yeah. Um, so I, I did want to um, ask a couple questions about about this because and I think we've answered a lot of the questions that I had along the way and so I, I really appreciate it um, I believe that you refer to the residents as, as neighbors yeah they're correct I, I do love that uh, I thought that was really a, a neat way to to foster that that idea of connection yeah. uh, with one another gives dignity absolutely <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you know if you could describe any of the challenges uh, of balancing your calling to community first with with your professional career, because that one, I think, I think that blew my mind thinking thinking about moving from uh, you know a very comfortable lifestyle to one a bit more challenging while still having a um, a full plate. <laughs> yeah. Um... I used to travel a couple hundred thousand miles a year, about 10 trips a year to Japan pre-COVID, you know, so over the last 23 years, um, I've put a lot of miles, you know, in that space. Lead a company of over 2,000 people, 
um, with a couple billion dollars in revenue. So the scale and scope, I have 17 sites around the U.S., so I travel a lot. Mm-hmm. The thing I love about it, when you're balancing where we were living, is um, my name there was Wendy's husband. <laughs> so, you know, this really allowed my wife to flourish with her gifts and talents. And um, a few people knew what I did for a living, and I would get asked for sponsorship on new business opportunities and, and occasionally would get uh, requests for financial support and, and discerning some of those things is interesting. Um, but it's amazing what you can do without when you're in, in that kind of role. Uh, when we transition, I often, when I, maybe I did it with your tour, I often like to ask people, hey, what three things do you think we needed when we moved from the RV to the tiny home? It's kind of like, what were the three things we missed? Hmm. And, um, and I, I get a wide variety of, of responses to that question. And um, the three things we were missing, my, when my wife designed the, the tiny home, she wanted a bathtub. Okay, that was one thing. Uh, I needed a closet. So like in the back of my pickup truck, I had all my clothes because there was no, <laughs> you know, so I think the company was starting to wonder if we were going to go under because the president, you know, has got his clothes in the back of his pickup truck. Um, and then the last thing, we wanted a washer and dryer. So, you know, in the video, you saw the the public washers and dryers, which is great. Um, but on occasion, um, you know, they're kind of harsh on your clothing, the high temperatures and just, you know, from a laundromat kind of standpoint. And occasionally we would have a few missing items and, and uh, <laughs> a few of our neighbors were wearing my wife's clothing as you're walking down the street. So it created not uh, tension, but opportunities to, you know, to, to strengthen the relationship. <laughs> mm. I love that you've had the opportunity. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd say more than an opportunity that you, you've had the experience of spending that much time on the property. How do you think, do you think it has uh, grown your faith? And, and if so, how, how do you think it's it's maybe changed your, your lens on maybe how God views us? Yeah, I, I think it has. It's been, you know, it went uh, after the first few months there, you know, we thought, oh, we're going there to serve. Um, and I remember Wendy and I were walking back from a meeting one night, and it was probably a Saturday night, walking back to the to the RV and we just kind of reflected and said, this, this really is not a service opportunity. It's, it's a privilege, hmm. uh, you know, to be part of this movement, part of this journey. Um, and so it has been a blessing. Things changed during COVID with restrictions and family dynamics that hmm. we ended up moving off the property because uh, daughter couldn't stay with us and, you know, we sold everything. And so we ended up buying a house about eight minutes up the road after five and a half years on the property. Uh, but I, I refer back to, you know, many times in our faith journey, there's this intellectual aspect of our faith, uh, the- theology. Uh, Community First provides this unique opportunity for unity across denominations. Mm-hmm. Because what are you trying to do? You're focused on love. Love thy neighbor. Mm-hmm. Now, theology is important and, and it's critical. But we've blended Catholics and Protestants and and it's a unique place that even uh, we have a community of Steiner Ranch that has been feeding the community for eight years, probably eight plus years. It's not a religious organization. It's a community. Mm-hmm. They come from Steiner Ranch. It's got to be an hour drive all the like. way across town. Mm-hmm. They come and feed a couple hundred people every Thursday night. Mm-hmm. I went to dinner one there one night, and everybody there feeding us was of a Muslim faith. Hmm. Where else can you have that? 
Right. Right. Where else can you have that? So mm. head, God touched my heart, mm. and then I, I used my hands, my gifts and talents, and uh, it probably challenged me in every aspect of that. Wow. I appreciate sharing that. And, and um, I think the, the words that they, that they use there in the video is they, t- they talk about dignifying work. Um, that one, that one at first got me, um, questioning is what is considered undignifying work, but what is, what is, what do they mean when they describe dignifying work for the people on the property? Um, so it's interesting cause, cause I, I would have debates with a couple, one in particular, one of our neighbors that, Hey, I'm going to work. I'm going to go fly a sign and, and beg for the next six hours and see mm-hmm. how well I do. Uh, what are you producing? Uh, that's really begging, you know. So you're having an honest conversation, but his view was that I'm, I'm going out to work to get my income for the day, and so there's there's this perception of work, you know. Mm-hmm. Alan Graham refers back to Genesis three, and he placed them in the garden, and it was good, and mm-hmm. and there was work that was required, the Garden of Eden at the time, and so work dignified work to where you're contributing to this community and you're receiving compensation for that uh, and be part of the greater community is uh, has been part of this original plan and so I just see that as as beautiful hmm. um, and many of our neighbors are on disability and and government support which is fine that's the stage of life or the the situation that they're in but they can augment it and you know we have a what we call the Gus bus, the goodness bus, a little little golf cart that many of our neighbors now drive others around the 52 acre community and just get them from destination to destination. So that's a contract and allows them to have dignity and connect and build relationships and kind of like probably a bartender listening to the challenges <laughs> of the day. Um, but those are some of the examples. Wow, I, I and I love that you point to the garden as well because. On the property as well, there's there's an incredible uh, garden or series of uh, gardens. And uh, one thing that uh, when we went to go volunteer on the property, I was a little bit jealous of my friends that got to go work in the garden, <laughs> you know, because we went to go go pull weeds. But I I was by the end of that experience, I was so thankful that I was pulling weeds because we got to make such a great connection with one of the neighbors there and spend so much time around her. And and, and I was like, I wouldn't have traded that <laughs> that experience for anything. a neighbor was your tour guide for the day, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How powerful is that? Right. Right. And again, you know, going back to the amount of pride when, when they show you their, their home and, uh, and invite you inside, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know that I would want to invite a bunch of strangers in my home, but I mean the, the, the joy, which I showed off, you know, here's what, here's what I've done with the home. Here's, here's a picture of me on a magazine with my home. <laughs> um, it was, um, yeah. it was, um, is very is very humbling. It was really um, it really touched my heart. And um, a couple more things I want want to touch on real quick about about community first too was um, you know I, I saw that in the video they have uh, they have transportation. Uh, you know they they have a city bus that that, that comes. They have um, medical services uh, and and dog parks and uh, you know. Uh, clean clean homes and facilities and 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 all of these things that I think when you when when I think about what are all the things that somebody that 
is on the streets might need you know those are those are very top of the list right how do you how do you get to work uh how do you you know find a bathroom you know how do you um you know do xyz how do you find medical care what is that adjustment period like for somebody that comes off of the streets what what is what is that first day look like coming into a home how do they how do they have you seen i imagine you've seen some of those that processing that they do it's a great question, and and it's and it's probably one of my surprises. Okay, so imagine you've been on the street for ten years. You're probably up a good portion of the night, so that you're not physically abused. Your stuff isn't stolen, and so you're you're out of cycle hmm. of a normal sleep cycle just because of of the security concerns. You now have a home you can lock the door. Hmm. Security, number one. No one's going to steal my stuff. Okay. Number two, they probably haven't slept on a mattress in years. So I've observed people coming into their new home, and we believe in first fruits. It's going to be brand new. It's going to be color-coded to their favorites. And I mean, we, we do a really special job of welcoming them home with, with love and with gifts, they typically sleep on the floor because um, that's oh. where they've slept for years. The, the, the bed is, is kind of new to them in some cases. These are some of my observations. I'm not saying it's every observation. So security, and they may sleep for days because they haven't had a really good sleep in so long. You know, you're out of cycle. There's noises. There's all of the distractions that has contributed to some of their challenges of living on the street. So those are just a couple of the observations and it's theirs. Yeah. There's ownership. There's pride. Now, it's not perfect. We got hoarders out there. We got people that are struggling with those kinds of challenges. But as you've walked through the community, you know, it's um, it's amazingly clean. Mm-hmm. That sure is. Um, and and I got the chance to step inside of one of the, the uh, homes that wasn't currently occupied. And, you, you know, t- yes, everything was brand new beautiful well kept i mean i was it was it was very impressive um so i imagine just that just that even that transition to to new things you know I, after probably spending a lot of time getting everything secondhand yeah you know well or in and, good and, shape and think about it you know you came on the tour and and we love it to to this to the point where we're saying hey evan i could see myself living there why would we want a, a lesser standard for those brothers and sisters that have fallen on a difficult circumstance? Why not create an environment that you and I could say, I could see myself living there. Right. That's dignity. Mm. Mm. So it, uh, we can, we can um, this is just a bonus question, so we can keep this or, or, or we don't have to, but I'd love to know um, if there's any success stories or anything any stories you'd like to share about any of the 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 neighbors on the property i have a lot of stories i have a lot um but one i love to share is a simple act of kindness and and i'll you can tell you about some of the impact and um um providing trust and see what can happen in that environment so i'll describe this story i love it uh it's with my friend tim and so you were on the property. If you go from the video, you go by the bus stop. What's the circle 
you know, from the map you saw, there's a circle. So when I would leave my my dwelling and get in my truck, I'd always have to go by the coming in and going out the bus stop. So most, not most, many of my stories are, are related to encounters at the bus stop. It was February, probably about eight or nine years ago now, and my neighbor Tim, who I love dearly, uh, was at the bus stop. And um, I rolled down the window, so I typically would greet who's ever there, get to know the names, and just um, just encounter your neighbors. And uh, I said, hey, Tim, where are you going? And he goes, well, I'm, I'm heading down to the methadone clinic. Hmm. Oh, where's it at? And he goes, it's, you know, gave me the location off Cesar Chavez down. It's kind of on my way to work. I said, hey, it's on my way to work. Why don't you jump in the car, and I'll, I'll bring you there. And so he gets in the car, and... Um, not far after we start the drive, he goes, yeah, you have no idea how impactful this is. I'm like, Tim, it's, it's a simple ride. He goes, no, you don't understand. He says, you know, he's probably 70 years old. Uh, he's a heroin addict and, uh, and he's a felon. He's had uh, a criminal past. And he said, you know, the last several years that I was in the penitentiary, I had an authority issue with the warden and he put me in a pit 23 hours a day. In Texas, you know, what's it, 109 probably right now outside? So when he gets on a bus and it's in February and it's not cold here like other parts of the country, but it's still cold enough where the, the bus driver cranks the heat up. Hmm. He gets on that bus and he goes back to his hole oh, and he has to get off at every stop, breathe, recover. It takes him two and a half hours to get to the methanol clinic. So he, he's describing this story to me. And I said, well, well, how often do you go to the clinic? And he goes, I, I go every other Tuesday. I said, well, when I'm in town not traveling, I will, I will put that on my calendar as a recurrent appointment every other Tuesday at 7 a.m. I'm driving Tim, and I could show you my phone right now. I'm driving Tim to the methanol clinic. Mm-hmm. And that's seven or eight years He's one of my closest friends. He's been to my kids' parties. He's been to dinners. We've celebrated all of these things together from a simple ride. So my wife is a person of great faith. I kind of go the full gamut of risk and reward and what are the two extremes, best case, worst case. So we would head back to Minnesota for family vacations. And Wendy comes to me and she says, hey, I want Tim to watch our our, uh, house while we're gone. And he can watch the cat, take care of the plants, you know, just, and we're going to pay him 25 bucks a day. Much like maybe when you're here with your dogs, you have to have someone Mm -hmm. care for him. And I said, you want a convicted felon, former heroin addict to watch your stuff? I was a little skeptical about that. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's what we're going to do. Okay. Um, we came back a week later, and he's sitting on the porch, and he's like, it's all there. Hmm. You, you trusted me. Wow. And um, we've since had several cases where we'll, you know, we'll, you know, partner with our neighbors to care for our stuff. And the trust level of of where it went from here, it, it just took a whole whole nother level. So I, I just give you that one story of where you're vulnerable, you're willing to take some risks, you're willing to have something happen. Hmm. Um, but the the level and trust of those relationships, um, 
and and Tam is a rock star out there. He's probably met every congressman and senator. He's he was interviewed by uh, Leslie Stahl a couple weeks ago on 60 Minutes. Hmm. And so his life has been transformed. We call him a seed neighbor to where when he was living next to us, he was doing so well and it uh, contributed so well to the community. We planted him in phase two Hmm. to be a good influence on our our new neighbors coming in. And uh, that's that's my favorite. What a story. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for sharing. We've had the opportunity to touch on a lot of uh, stories about vulnerability. We've had a lot of opportunities to talk about leadership, life experiences, trust, uh, dignity. I want to kind of wind this down by talking about something uh, more, more just personal to you, maybe, and that's about that's about books. I'm trying to spend more time reading, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, and so I like to give you know book recommendations where possible. So I'd love to know. First off, uh, are there any books that have shaped your career, or in this case, uh, your uh, your your passions and, and your pursuit of of solving problems? You know, it's interesting. I I um, I share about six books that have had an influence on my on my career, and there's one book that had an impact on on this journey with homelessness. Um, coming out of West Point, one of the first books I read and I was tired from studying was The One Minute Manager, which is a classic, okay? Mm. And um, I'm reading through this and it's like, you know, you've got how to manage, you know, goal setting, one minute reprimands, one minute up. And, but the phrase that really impacted me was going out and finding people doing things right. Mm. So that was really important for me in creating an atmosphere of affirmation. And we're, we're technologists and we're problem solvers. We, we start with a problem statement. You know, so One Minute Manager. Um, I also tried to shape our culture at uh, TalUS of a foundation of trust, okay? And the, the Speed of Trust is a book uh, by Stephen Covey. I think it's the second. Stephen Covey Sr. wrote like The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, another good book. Um, but, but The Speed of Trust sh- um, covered how you build trust and, and it showed up in our, in our work and also in our community. And it's really with two, two particular areas. You know, do you have character and are you competent? So you could be the most honest person, but if you, you're not competent in your job, you won't have trust. And you could be the most competent person, yet have no integrity, and you won't have trust. So mm. we've integrated that into our, our uh, culture, our foundation, and uh, our, our vision statement for TellUS is a trusted global partner providing technology that enables life. You know, so trust has been a really big part of my leadership journey, and then I used that book uh, to shape that. I just went to the Global Leadership Summit mm. uh, two weeks ago, and uh, I, I'm trying to remember the, the gentleman's name, but it was the title of the book is Trust. Okay. And um, one of the keynote speakers said, trust formula is um, transparency plus empathy plus consistency equals trust. So I'm going to study that further and I've got that book, um, but that's kind of the highlight of, of the additional information on, on creating that trust. 
And then from an operation standpoint, there's a bunch of those execution with Larry Bossidy. There's others like I, I put in three for threes or six for sixes. What do you do for three day or three key items for three weeks, three months, three years? So you can kind of take a long-term, short-term vision. You know, sometimes I would say short, medium, and long-term goals. And I'd have engineers look at me, well, can you define that for me? So I defined it for them. Um, and then there's there's a couple of others. Uh, Andy Stanley, um, making vision stick, you know, take you about a half hour maybe an hour it's a real one of those small books but how do you cast a vision and then continue to reinforce it mm. and uh, that's been a good one and then um, I also liked because our our culture and the military is more um, authoritative and hierarchical mm-hmm. um, uh, John Maxwell a leadership guru uh, wrote a book called 360 degree leader where you're using influence rather than authority and you can learn lead from anywhere within an organization so i would say those are like the top six that i've had a pretty significant influence on my leadership and how uh, we carry that out within my organization the one key book that got me on this journey um, with homelessness and it's a book that was um, converted into a movie but i'd suggest reading the book is same kind of different as me and it's a story of an international art dealer that's wife started to volunteer in a soup kitchen in Fort Worth, Texas. Mm. And Denver Moore is a modern day slave and he's homeless. And you've got a guy on one side of the societal um, spectrum and one on the other, and they become best friends. Mm. Um, it's kind of Larry and Tim. But that's the book I read, I, w- I guess that was probably about 15 years ago. Wow. Uh, and you can sample from from those if you'd like, but I've got one f- fun little book question that a friend of mine, Pat Hazel, he's got a uh, podcast called Creativity and Captivity. Uh, he interviews some, some fascinating uh, folks, but one question he loves to ask, and I'm going to steal this from him, is uh, what is your coma reading? As in, if you are in a coma, what book would you like somebody to read to you over and over again? God's word. Mm. I think yeah. that'll bring, I mean, if you think of the fruit of the spirit and um, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, self-control, um, it's a living word. And so if I'm in a coma, why not get God's word uh, to continue to feed the person reading and to feed me in that condition? Oh. Good answer. I like I like the I like the the uh, aspect from both sides. That's that's good. <laughs> well, as far as uh, as far as questions for today, that's 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 about all I have. Uh, except I'd like to I'd like to just quickly touch two two things. Um, how would you encourage listeners to identify their calling and passion? We've talked about mentorship in other episodes. We we haven't really cracked the code to finding good mentors, but how would you how would you encourage a listener to identify what is a passion worth pursuing and how do you balance that with paying bills? That's the hardest question I've got today. (laughs) Um, You know, as part of our faith journey, sometimes we, we take these surveys called spiritual gifts. Mm. You know, we all have these gifts and talents, right? And then how are we using them? And, and, um, there's a there's a theory or a, um, a premise, I guess, that 
you're wired with these gifts and and you can assess them and you'll get clarity versus why don't you try a bunch of different things and and see what feeds your soul hmm. you know so i've done a couple of the you know things that you know um i've taken calls um evangelical calls and been in japan and been on the phone with someone because I was in their middle of the night and, and, and actually they were in a suicidal state, you know? And, mm. and so, but someone, in, someone gave me the invitation to experience something that maybe I didn't know was a gift. And as you go through this, so I love, I'm passionate about leadership. I'm passionate about, you know, I've, I believe my calling has been clarified around this hiring and housing veterans. Um, but it's refined over time and doing different things. And, and you ask good questions about successes and failures. And, and so I, I don't believe there's a book and I, I'll, I'll you know, go through an interview of 17 different questions. I'm sure there is. But I also think you got to navigate you know, how you're wired, how people encourage you, where your education you know, preferences are, and then be open to just try some different experiences and, and, it, and it may open up a space that you never imagined. Well, that's the, that's the best answer I've gotten so far, I think. And I've asked myself that many times. <laughs> uh, just I, say yes is what Alan would say. <laughs> I appreciate that. Oh, I love the book by Bob, Bob Goff, uh, Love Does. Yes. That's, that's one of my favorites. Great book. That'd be, that'd be secondary. Good coma reading for me. Too. Great book. <laughs> Um, and so I know that folks can find uh, Community First and the um, and the opportunity to volunteer and get involved at mlf.org. Uh, and uh, and so while you're trying to find your your passion, I think that it's a good opportunity also to serve, and that that will also help identify things that you may or may not be passionate about as well. Right? Absolutely. Um, well, any, any parting words that we want to uh, to impart uh, on listeners before we. Uh, close it up for the day. Evan, you know, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, this came from an invitation and from a tour. And so just saying yes at times uh, can create relationships. Uh, I also applaud you for pursuing your passion uh, to uh, challenge individuals, to help them seek um, uh, their passion and their legacy and, and whether it's with fathers and their histories and families and, and uh, the successors uh, as, you, as you frame this podcast. So I just want to say thanks uh, for this opportunity um, to explore some questions I haven't thought of either. And so every time we have a chance to have a dialogue, this it unpacks different aspects of where we're working, where we're serving, our families, our legacies, our history, but also what's that future state that we can look forward to. So thanks for the opportunity to be with you today. I ask uh, that God blesses you as you go through with this journey and get a chance to interview a variety of people. And uh, I hope uh, it blesses others that will be able to chance to listen. This is Successor. Thank you.